Matthew chapter 2 is where we're going. We'll look at verses 13 through 23. And this is God's word for us today. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet out of Egypt. I called my son. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled but was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to, in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel, for those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there. And being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee. And he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled. He shall be called a Nazarene. Let's pray together. Lord, this is a great example, Lord, of one of those passages that is hard for us to hear, hard for us to imagine, and yet you are sovereign and good. Help us, Lord, to see what you want us to see. Let our hearts be changed for your glory. We ask it in Christ's name. Amen. You can be seated. You can almost picture our study like one of those really cool TV series, you know? We've already seen the credits roll. That's the beginning of chapter one, right? We've heard, we've heard the theme music play. We've, we've been reminded of the background because this story, what we're reading, what we're studying is the story of Jesus. It's about Jesus, the promised one from God. He is connected, as we saw, to the promises that God made to Abraham and to King David. And no matter how many times in history people tried to kill off the promised line, they survived. Abraham himself nearly messed things up completely by trying to make, uh, he tried to make his own family with his wife's servant instead of his wife. It wasn't a good idea. I don't recommend it. The, the family could have starved during a famine in the land. The line of promise when it grew into a nation could have died at the hands of Pharaoh, the Egyptian monarch. David, the kingly connection to the family, could have died at the spear thrust of a nine foot tall giant. The promise could have ended in the Babylonian captivity. It could have ended under the genocidal mania of Haman, a Persian high official. Or the promise could have just faded away because the nation returned to their land. They failed to follow God. They were attacked by the Syrians. They were subjected to the Greeks and eventually the Romans. Back in chapter 1, we saw the story begin. And we heard the list of names through which the Savior came into the world. And we saw what can only be said to be a miracle. A virgin, Mary, conceived a son by the power of the Holy Spirit. 
And then an angel came to Joseph, Mary's fiance, and she to, and the angel told him that he was to marry Mary and to be stepdad to the son of God himself. And all happened as it should have. And the promised one was born. His name was Jesus, meaning God saves. He also could have been called Emmanuel, which means God with us. Just as the Old Testament prophet Isaiah predicted. He was part of Abraham's family. He was descended from King David. And he fit the description of the promised one to come better than anybody ever. Then came chapter 2. Last week's episode, right? Last week's installment of the story that we saw. And Joseph, Mary, and a very young Jesus were living in Bethlehem, about five miles from Jerusalem, the capital city. And wise men arrived with an entourage. They, they bowed down. They worshipped the young Jesus. They gave him gifts fit for a king, gold and frankincense and myrrh. They were led there by a supernatural light in the sky, and they left. What Joseph and Mary didn't know about at the time was that the wise men had inadvertently raised the curiosity and fear of the Roman authorized king over Judea, Herod the Great. This man was powerful. He was free with a bribe and generous when it helped his cause. He was also ruthless and murderous. He was famous for killing off any of his own family members or his wives if he ever felt threatened by them. Caesar Augustus once remarked about Herod with a little, little Greek play on words. He said about Herod, it was safer to be his pig than to be his son. Uh, the word pig and son actually sounds similar in Greece. It's, it's, it's safer to be his hus than his huyas. But, um, and one reason why is because Herod at least pretended to be a Jew so he wouldn't eat the pig. Not a nice man. Herod asked the wise men to come and help him find the child who had recently been born. Herod wanted to locate the little threat to his throne before it was too late. Herod wanted to eliminate him. What's going to happen next as we tune in, right? Is God going to let his plan fail now? Whatever's about to happen, you can bet it's going to be ugly and sad and bloody because that's just how Herod rolls. So this is the drama in the background as our story continues. If you're a note taker, four points. Be ready for four this morning. The first one, very simply put, is this. Obey the commands of God. Obey the commands of God. Look at verses 13 to the beginning of verse 15 of Matthew 2. Now, when they had departed, behold, an angel from the Lord appeared to Joseph in a dream and said, Rise, take the child and his mother and flee to Egypt and remain there until I tell you. For Herod is about to search for the child to destroy him. And he rose and took the child and his mother by night and departed to Egypt and remained there until the death of Herod. So it's not long. Uh, after the wise men leave the family in their little house in Bethlehem, everybody's asleep and something amazing happens. For the second time, an angel from God comes to Joseph in a dream. And like I said last week, when you see the word behold in the text like this, you're supposed to think, wow, look at that. This is amazing. An angel shows up and he tells Joseph, to run away with the child and Mary to Egypt. 
Now, some folks take note here that notice that the child is mentioned before his mother. The story is about Jesus, after all. Well, running away to Egypt was sensible on several levels. It's about 75 miles from Jerusalem to the border of Egypt. It would take them about another 100 miles to get to a city where they could settle down safely. But Egypt was outside of Herod's jurisdiction. But Egypt wasn't as foreign as you might think. See, there were a great many Jews living in Egypt, especially in the city of Alexandria. Uh, Historians say that there could have been up to a million or more Jews living in Alexandria back when the Septuagint was translated from Hebrew to Greek. That was where it was done. And, just as we've seen Joseph do from the beginning, what does he do? He immediately obeys the command given to him by the angel. He takes off with his family. And if, if you read some corny jokes correctly, he brought their pet too. It was a bug because it said, take Joseph, the baby Mary, and flee to Egypt. Jason, that was for you. I just want you to know that, brother. Jason Lekowitz told me to stop telling corny jokes today, and I just had one more I couldn't help. You'll share that with somebody later. I, I know you will. Well, they flee from the murderous king in the middle of the night. What emotions do you imagine must have been in Mary and Joseph's hearts? I mean, think of what they've been through. I mean, just in the past night or so, right? Foreign dignitaries came to their house and bowed down before their son and gave him treasure. Now an angel of God tells them, run and run now, because if you don't, you're all going to die. They've got to leave behind their house. I mean, they were living in a house. I, you know, even if Jesus was a couple of years old, you know, he might have been two or a little under, right? He could have been six months old. Who knows, right? But either way, it stinks to move out of a house you just moved into. Nobody likes moving. And here they go. They've got to run, and they've got to start over again. How long would they be in Egypt? The angel didn't tell Joseph. He just told Joseph, plan to be gone until he tells Joseph to return. So Joseph's job, like Father Abraham before him, was to listen to the command of God and to go to the place God would show him for as long as God said to be there. And verse 15 says they stayed there till Herod died. And you kind of have to wonder, by the way, were they able to afford to live in Egypt by selling the treasures that the wise man gave the child? We don't have any idea what happened to that stuff, but we know this. When Jesus was presented in the temple as an infant, Joseph and Mary were poor because they had to sacrifice a turtle dove. But they are able to move away from Bethlehem and to live for however long it took to live in Egypt and then move back and set up shop in, in their new home later. God provided. Now, I want to make a point for us to learn from this passage so far, but I want to be really clear before I make it. The point of this passage is Jesus. The focus of this story is Jesus. What God is doing in the young life of the child Messiah is what God wants you to see through all of it. But with that said, and please understand that's primary, there is something we're taking note of here. And that's the first point. Obey the commands of God. Joseph received supernatural revelation from God. God told him to get up, 
take the family and run, and Joseph obeyed. And in doing so, he saved his own life and the lives of his wife and their baby, or, and her baby, not theirs, I guess, really. Now, Christians, please do not expect to be visited by angels with direct revelation. That rarely happened in biblical days. It is far less likely to happen now that God has finished giving humanity his perfect revelation. But, look to the commands of God that he has passed down through the generations. Look to the Bible, which is the word of God, and look there to find what God commands you to do and what to think. And like Joseph, make it a mark on your life, a mark of your character, that you become somebody that hears the commands of God and obeys them. Because the word of God rightly understood and applied, is God speaking. God speaks in Scripture. Hear and obey the command of God. Now, let's look at the actual point of the whole passage. And we'll, we'll find it, really, point number two, at the end of verse 15. The point two is, see Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. See Jesus as the fulfillment of all of God's promises. Look at the end of verse 15. It says, This was to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. Out of Egypt I called my son. So right here in the middle of the story, right? Matthew interjects a thought for his readers. He's got a plan, and the plan is bigger than telling a fascinating and highly dramatic story. He wants his readers to know that what's happening here, what Jesus is doing, it is exactly what God has promised for centuries. The Bible, and I've said this teaching children before, the Bible is one great story. But like any great story, it's made up of smaller stories. Does that make sense to you? Like, Think of a movie you've watched. Remember watching like the cartoon version of Cinderella from Disney years ago? How many stories are in that movie? Right? A young girl loses her dad, mean sisters or stepsisters. That's a story all to itself. That's a story. That's a whole story. Mice make her a dress. That's a story, believe me. <laughs> Crazy old woman with a wand shows up, makes her another dress. That's a story. Dances with the prince and runs away. That's a story loses a shoe, and the prince identifies her by her footwear. What a great criteria for selecting a spouse. <laughs> that is a story. Not a good one, but it's a story. But the whole story is made up of all those little stories. The Bible is a grand narrative. It's a great story. And God is the center of every bit of the story. He makes people for the purpose of displaying his glory. That's a story. The people he makes rebel against him. That's a story. But instead of destroying the people, which God could have done, God makes them a promise. He promises them that he's going to send somebody into the world who will set right what has gone wrong. And all of the Old Testament of the Bible is a collection of the stories of that promise being made again and again and again. In the Old Testament, we see God's standards. And we see that people never live up to them. 
We see that God makes a way for people to be forgiven, but we also see that there's a better way coming. We see God promising to bring the one who will rescue his children into the world through Abraham's family. We see that that family becomes a nation that has promises, the nation promises time and time again, oh God, we promise we'll follow you, but they never do. And on and on the story goes. God is always perfect. God is always at the center. God always is rightly judging. God is always rightly offering grace. And every bit of the Old Testament is there to point to that one who will come and fulfill the big promise of God. It all points to Jesus again and again and again. And when Matthew says this stuff, like he says right here, he wants us to see that Jesus in his life fulfills the promises that God has been making from the beginning. And so time and time again, Matthew is going to tell us that something happened in order to fulfill what was said or what was hinted at long ago. Matthew knew that the prophets who spoke so long ago, they weren't all trying to predict the actual events of Jesus' life. They weren't trying to use every word to point to a Messiah. They didn't know all that for sure. But Matthew knew that the sovereign God overall was in in control. Matthew knew that all the events that came together in the Old Testament, all the moves of the nation of Israel, all the acts of the prophets, all of them served to hint at and shine a light on the fact of what Jesus would be and what he would do. I mean, we've already seen twice Matthew point us towards something about Jesus fulfilling what the prophets said. Back in chapter 1, 22 and 23, Matthew reminds us of the prophecy that a virgin would conceive and bear a son. In 2, verses 5 and 6, the Jewish scholars point out that Messiah was to be born in Bethlehem. Here we have another prophecy, the third time in two chapters that he says, hey, this fulfills what God's been promising all along. Something about Jesus moving to Egypt reminds Matthew of the Old Testament. Specifically, Hosea chapter 11, verse 1. That's what we call it. When Israel was a child, the Bible says, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. Now, if you know Hosea, by the way, if you know that book, you know that Hosea wasn't thinking right there, I'm looking forward and predicting the coming of the Messiah. I don't know that Hosea had that in his mind exactly. Because Hosea in 11.1 was looking back over the past when God, out of his love forward commitment to Israel, rescued the nation up out of Egypt. You know that whole Pharaoh, Exodus, Prince of Egypt kind of thing, right? But here's the thing. Matthew ties it to Jesus because Jesus is a much more true son of God than was the nation of Israel as a whole. And Jesus is going to come into the land out of Egypt just like God did with Israel. And really, folks, the entirety of the passage we're reading is for this purpose. See Jesus as the fulfillment of God's promises. Jesus is the one that God has been promising since the Garden of Eden. Jesus is the one that God planned to send to earth and rescue his children since before the dawn of time. The child being carried down to Egypt is not an accident. It is not by the will of Herod alone that Jesus is down there. Jesus is perfectly doing everything that God has always planned for him to do. He is going to be the ultimate completion of a story that's been going on since before creation. 
He's going to be the perfect completion of the story that is told in the life of Abraham, in the exodus from Egypt, in the sacrificial system, and so very much more. Because Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the Messiah. Jesus is the chosen one. Jesus is the promised one. And God wants you to understand this so that you can yield your life to His Lordship and come to Jesus for mercy. Let's go on with the story. And I'll see the third point for us. Point three, very simple. Prepare for persecution. Prepare for persecution. Verses 16 through 18. Then Herod, when he saw that he had been tricked by the wise men, became furious. And he sent and killed all the male children in Bethlehem and in all that region who were two years old or under, according to the time that he had ascertained from the wise men. Then was fulfilled what was spoken by the prophet Jeremiah. A voice was heard in Ramah, weeping in loud lamentation, Rachel weeping for her children. She refused to be comforted because they are no more. So the family is safely hidden down in Egypt and the scene shifts back to Jerusalem and the insane, wicked King Herod. Interesting, isn't it? That the Bible showed us at the beginning of the chapter that Jesus is the legitimately true, promised King of Kings. Now we see the impotent evil of a power-mad ruler. Probably didn't take Herod long to figure out that the wise men that he thought he was tricking into leading him to Jesus weren't coming back. And at that point, Herod, he's furious. He thought he could trick the wise men, but they didn't fall for it. And just like every bully in the whole wide world, Herod feels wronged by people doing to him what he intended to do to them. But... Herod had enough information to cause a big problem. See, he knew that the child king was born in Bethlehem. He knew from the wise men around how old the child should be. So Herod sent hardened soldiers with sharp daggers to the little hamlet just five miles away. And the soldiers had real simple orders. Find every boy child two or under, and they were supposed to put those children to death. The baby boys of Jerusalem were going to be slaughtered. Like Pharaoh's order to kill all the male Hebrew babies by tossing them in the Nile so many years before, a murderous order is given and children die. But like that order given in Egypt so many years before, the order misses the child that God had chosen to deliver his people. Now, For those who are interested in historical references and apologetics, you need to know that there are scholars out there who argue that this didn't happen. They say it can't have happened. It's not recorded in any of the major histories. And so Herod must not have done it. That's a terrible argument. Herod was known for big, bombastic, violent action. And there's no way that every crazy thing that he did was recorded. It'd be just like my life. You can't you don't have enough paper to record all the dumb things I do. <laughs> There's no way they got everything Herod did. But know this, Bethlehem was a small village. It would have been very easy for historians to overlook this event in the light of the major metropolitan and military exploits of the day, right? 
I mean, in my own world, I grew up in a town bigger than Bethlehem was reported to be. And when I grew up, my town's population sign read 900. And my high school graduating class had 17. Take two years of that, round up just for grins and giggles, and in my town, there would have been maybe 40 children aged two and under. Out of that, there's probably around 20 or so boys. And every commentary I read agrees that there were probably between 15 and 20 baby boys to be found in Bethlehem when the soldiers arrived. Now, does that make this not horrible? Of course not. It's, it's awful. It's a tragedy. It's ugh. But it is the kind of horror that might not have been recorded by the major historians who were worried about what was going on in the big city. It happened. God's word is trustworthy. Now, Matthew again ties it to words from the Old Testament. This time, he's pointing us to the book of Jeremiah. We would say 31.15, which says, Thus says the Lord, a voice is heard in Ramah, lamentation and bitter weeping. Rachel is weeping for her children. She refuses to be comforted for her children because they are no more. Now, what was Jeremiah talking about when he wrote that? He was speaking about the deportation of God's children, the people going to Babylon. And many of the people were assembled and led through the town of Ramah, which was a town that bordered the northern and southern kingdoms. And Jeremiah imagined in that day that the voice of Rachel could be heard weeping for the children of Israel who were being taken away. Here Matthew imagines the same voice crying out over the unforgivable bloodshed in Bethlehem. Let's stop and learn something again. Again, we know the primary purpose is Jesus of this, but let's learn something. Did Joseph do what was right or not? Yes, right? You guys agree Joseph did what was right? He obeyed. He and his family perfectly obeyed God. But their obedience did not make the world a safe place. People who were not at all involved in the goings-on of that event suffered tremendous losses. The people of Bethlehem did not suffer because they were being punished by God for something. They suffered because of the coming of Christ and that the proper praise of Jesus offended a wicked government official. Christians, persecution will come. In this life, people around you will always hate the things of God. Until Jesus returns, until he sets right fully what's wrong with the world, we can know that suffering will accompany obedience to the commands of God. Joseph was driven from his new home to hide in a foreign land because of one man's hatred of all things related to Jesus. People in Bethlehem suffered because somebody wanted to destroy the Messiah. How could we possibly think that our world will not contain similar hardships? But listen, constantly the Bible rings the refrain to Christians to be prepared for persecution. You know why? Because when you know that as a Christian you can't avoid it, you won't cower from it. Instead, you will prepare yourself to face it with strength. For the glory of God. Prepare for persecution. Fourth point, final point for this morning. 
thrive under God's sovereignty. Thrive under God's sovereignty. Look at verse 19 to the end of the chapter. But when Herod died, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared in a dream to Joseph in Egypt, saying, Rise, take the child and his mother, and go to the land of Israel. For those who sought the child's life are dead. And he rose and took the child and his mother and went to the land of Israel. But when he heard that Archelaus was reigning over Judea in the place of his father Herod, he was afraid to go there, and being warned in a dream, he withdrew to the district of Galilee, and he went and lived in a city called Nazareth, that what was spoken by the prophets might be fulfilled, he shall be called a Nazarene. So here we go, we finally return to the scene in Egypt. Word has gotten out that King Herod is dead, and behold, again, right, the angel comes back to Joseph in another dream, and in an almost identical conversation to the last one, the angel tells Joseph to head back to Israel. There's no flea in this one, so it must have died. I don't know, maybe it didn't make the trip. I'm sorry, I'll quit. You don't really want me to stop doing stuff like that, do you? No, no, Jason doesn't. <laughs> well, so... But, but the angel says, go back home. The wicked ruler and his cronies are dead. And again, Joseph, he gets up, he obeys. And what's Joseph probably thinking? Let's head back to Bethlehem. I mean, that is a good place to raise the future king of the Jews. I mean, the son of David living in the city of David, how do you beat that? But it's not going to happen. Joseph learns that Herod's son Archelaus is ruling in Jerusalem. This was a surprise to him. Nobody thought Archelaus was going to get the throne. And it's not a welcome one. So Joseph has to make a different choice. Now, for those of you who are history buffs, note that just before King Herod the Great died, and I read about his death in the Antiquities of Josephus uh, this week, and oh, it was ugly. It was not at all nice the way King Herod died. Well, right before he died, he changed his will. Originally, people thought Antipater or Antipas would take over the rule of Jerusalem and Judea. But just before he died, Herod had Antipater killed. He assigned Antipas to Galilee and he authorized Archelaus to be the ruler over Judea, which included Jerusalem. And Archelaus, like his father before him, was violent and he was dangerous and he was foolish well, Joseph needed to take his family somewhere safer than Bethlehem. He needed to be out of the reach of Archelaus. And so, though it wasn't his original plan, the best course of action was to return to the, the area of Galilee, the northern part of the land of Israel. And that was confirmed in another dream. And so Joseph and Mary returned to the town of Nazareth, which was their original hometown, according to Luke. And then we get the third fulfillment statement in today's passage, right? Right? And this one is the weirdest one you'll read in the Bible. There is no Old Testament verse that says that the Messiah will be a Nazarene. It's not in there. I looked. There is no recorded prophecy outside of the Bible that says the Messiah will be a Nazarene that we have access to. Nobody can find it. So do we just assume that it's uh, not true? No. We know better than that. A close look at the way Matthew wrote this shows us a couple things. It shows us Matthew is not really intending to quote a text. He doesn't say it the same way that he says it when he's quoting scripture. 
But the way Matthew's worded his statement, it's more general. It's like he's saying what was spoken overall by the prophets was fulfilled by Jesus being called a Nazarene. How? Here's what you've got to understand. If you lived back then and you heard the word Nazareth and thought of people from Nazareth, you would have a thought in your mind. Nazareth was a little backwater, unimportant, redneck town. Nobody important came from Nazareth. Nothing good could possibly come out of Nazareth, at least not according to Nathaniel in John chapter 1, verse 46. So what's fulfilled is the understanding put forth by many of the prophets that the Messiah would be rejected and despised and ordinary. Can you think of a passage in the Bible that talks about people looking at the Messiah and just not thinking much of him at all? How about Isaiah talking about the suffering servant in 53, 1 through 3? Isaiah says, Who's believed what he's heard from us? To whom has the arm of the Lord been revealed? For he grew up before him like a young plant, like a root out of dry ground. He had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. He was despised and rejected by men, a man of sorrows and acquainted with grief and is one from whom men hide their faces. He was despised and we esteemed him not. Now, the word Nazarene is not in that passage. But that's a common theme in the Old Testament of things that would happen with the Savior to come. And the concept of what it would mean to be a Nazarene is there. And I think it's really the best way to understand what Matthew says here. Now, you will hear other teachers and commentators say that, well, now, the word Nazarene actually sounds like other words, kind of like a play on words, right? It, it kind of, it, it, if you twist the letters around a little bit, it kind of sounds like the word branch. And we all know that in the Old Testament there's a prophecy of a branch springing up from the root of Jesse, right? So maybe that's it. Or other people say, hey, there was a group of people under a certain kind of vow called Nazarites. So maybe, but the problem is Jesus was not a Nazarite. He did not uh, follow the restrictions on that vow. Samson was under a Nazarite vow. No grapes, no wine, apparently no haircuts for him, but that wasn't Jesus. None of those explanations is as clear and as simple as the explanation that Jesus would be called a Nazarene, a common word for an unimportant little redneck boy from a nothing town. But in all this, what happens? God has moved in his sovereign power. God has shaped things just the way God wanted. He had Jesus born in Bethlehem, just as was predicted. He had Jesus come out of Egypt, just as was predicted. He had Jesus dwell in Galilee in obscurity, just as fits all of the Old Testament description. You know what? God is on his throne, and God is in control. We need to live with that thought foremost in our minds. 
He is sovereign. He is Lord. He will not lose. He will not fail. Our lives are His to do with as He pleases. And though they might hurt, and though they might not work out the way that we plan, we can live and we can thrive in the sovereignty of God. So as the story fades from view for today, ask yourself if you have believed that Jesus is the one God has promised and pointed to with all of the stories that came before. If you see this truth, yield your life to Jesus and ask him to mercifully rescue you. If you are a follower of Jesus, obey the commands of God, prepare for persecution, and thrive under the sovereignty of our great God. Let's bow together in prayer. Lord, again, we say thanks to you because you are very, very good. And even in this story, in an ugly story of an ugly event, we reminded that your hand is in control, sovereign over all. Lord, help us remember that you're in control of our lives too. And help us to be obedient, submissive, and changed by you. We ask it in Christ's holy name. Amen.